And now we'll jump into the Bible. I, um, you got two handouts, and I appreciate the usher's hand. Did everybody get one? You got two. Anybody read it while we were worshiping? You didn't do that, right? Okay. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Okay, there's two of them here. And I, I've been talking about this uh, Bible reading system for a few weeks, and I, I apologize. I apologize. Seriously, I do apologize if you're tired of me talking about it, and I don't want to belabor it, but it's, I, I don't want to, I can't even, I cannot, I'm not exaggerating. It's changed my Bible reading, my spiritual life. It has. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And I wouldn't be saying that. I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't be pushing it or talking about it if it wasn't that meaningful to me. So I kept thinking, I'm going to tell you more about it and give you an opportunity to do it. And then a few people have done it. They've looked it up on their own, got it on their phone. If you have a, you know, a smartphone, if you have a, you know, an iPhone or Android phone, and you use the YouVersion Bible app or really, I think, the Globe Bible app or any of the Bible apps, you can access this reading plan there and do it on your phone if you want. Or... If you have a computer and use a computer, you can go to YouVersion and do it on your computer. You can do that that way too. But I wanted to at least put something in your hand for those of you who don't use those you know, electronic devices as much, or maybe you're more comfortable. In fact, I think there would be advantages to using a Bible that you're very familiar with and just use it over and over and over. And so here's what I did. Um, if you take this white sheet of paper, you'll notice there's three pages. I tried to save, or I tried to save trees. So let me explain how this works. There's a description of it, which I'm not going to read this to you. This is for you to read on your own time. But there's a description of the plan on these first couple pages. Then the, the, this second page here, it lists you know, out how to do it and gives you some instructions. You got a little picture of Dr. Horner. Remember I told you I thought he was like somebody from the 1800s? It just sounded like that kind of a name to me, but he's not. And then the last page is actually for you to make your own bookmarks. That's what that is. So it's if you were to cut bookmarks out, that's what it would be for. And so you'd put your bookmarks in your reading spots. But let me tell you why. I mean, you could read this on your own, but just let me give you a couple of excerpts why I love this system and what I found and what's been so exciting to me about it. Just as a quick overview, you are reading 10 chapters a day. And I know that sounds like a lot. And really, it was a lot the first week. I'm just telling you. But after that, it hasn't been a lot. And here's why. You, you've probably noticed this before. Maybe not. If, if you're not a reader, please don't be intimidated by this. And, and I'm telling you the truth. Once you start doing it, it gets easier. It's one of those things where if you don't do it, it's, it's not, it, it is difficult. I, I, it is. But once you start doing it over and over and over, it becomes a habit that you enjoy. And really, I know this sounds weird, and I'm not trying to be weird, but, but for the last week, every time I'm done with my thing, I'm thinking, wow, I'm done already. I kind of want to read ahead which is silly because I know what's next. I mean, it's, but here was what happens. And then the more you become familiar with these verses and the more you become familiar with scripture, you've probably done this before where you're reading a section of scripture and you come to a very familiar verse and it's, it's like, well, I know that verse. You almost quote it to yourself as you're reading it and you go quicker. Well, that's, that will happen. But here's something else really cool that happens is you get this broad scale contextualizing across both Testaments, Old and New Testaments and all the different biblical genres. What I mean by that is you, you know this, I know you know this because you've been in church long enough and you're Christians and you've been here and you've been taught this, but the New Testament writers were Jews. They were familiar with the Old Testament. A lot of what they wrote in the New Testament was flavored by and influenced by the Old Testament. So as you're reading things in the Old Testament, you're going to say, oh, wow, that sounds just like what Paul wrote in Corinthians. Well, that's because it is like that. 
Because he was, he was making reference to things in the Old Testament which his readers would have been familiar with, maybe more than us because the Jews were, they memorized scripture more than us. They just did. Here's another thing. Let me just kind of tell you, and I know this sounds daunting, but in, if you do this system with me, you will, in a year, you will have read all the Gospels four times. You will have read the first five books of the Bible twice. You will have read all of Paul's letters four or five times. You'll have read all of the Old Testament wisdom literature, that's Psalms, Proverbs, you know, that, all of that at six times. I mean, pro, uh, wisdom literature would be, I'm sorry, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then Psalms, you would have read twice, the entire book of Psalms, which is a lot. And then Proverbs and Acts 12 times, <laughs> which is a lot, isn't it? But you know what happens when you do that? That, that word is in you, and it's, it's, it's amazing. You feel like you know it better. Where, Dave? Well, that would, that would be if you did it a year. But the eight-month program will, you know, it'll, it'll lap over, you know, obviously four months. So it's a lot. It's incredible. Uh, let, me, let me just say a couple other things. What happens is these books, as you're reading them, they start to, and the ones you repeat, they, they start to interweave with each other. So you're not going to be actually reading the same books at the same time as you read them the last time. And then you'll start to see other comparisons that you hadn't seen before. Um, it's constantly changing you will get an, a totally different experience with your Bible, and you will see the Bible, how it comments literally on itself. Um, how many of you notice this? You buy a car, maybe you like a certain car. Like I remember this, this first time, I've always liked Jeeps, and the first time I bought a Jeep, I, I, was, I thought I was so cool. You know, I was a younger guy, and I just, I just thought, oh, I finally got a Jeep, you know, I'm driving a Jeep, and I realized, there's a million Jeeps. They're everywhere. Everybody has one. You ever notice that? You buy a certain model, and you think, I'd never seen one on the road before, and they're everywhere. This is what happens as you start to read this more and more. You become more and more familiar with it. Um, let me say this also about how you're supposed to read these 10 chapters. You know, there's different ways to read. I mentioned this quickly a couple weeks ago, but, you know, there's super quick skimming type reading, like maybe the way you would read something. You, you know, it's not real important. You're just going to read it real quick. Um, there's careful, moderate-paced reading. Then there's studying something, and then there's deep meditation, the way you're supposed to do this reading plan is kind of in between those first two. So you're supposed to read quickly, not so quick that you're not really comprehending, but not as slow as you might read something you're really trying to... And the reason you do this is the more you do it, the more you're... Our, our human mind is amazing. And we don't often use our mind to the capacity that it has. And this system really taps into something that our mind is really good at. You're picking things up, even though they may not be on the, the front conscious level. But then the next time you read that through, you're thinking, I've read that before, and I remember that was here. And you will find you start to... And as you read this person's, this guy's testimony about his own reading plan, he says, I started to realize I had sections of Scripture memorized, and I could flip to parts of the Bible that I didn't realize I'd even studied before. And that's what will happen. You will just learn it. So this is my sales pitch on this system, and I wanted to give you at least the tool, and that way you can see exactly how it works and see how to do it. This other tool is if, if maybe this system works better for you. This is the entire Bible system here, and what you would do is just put this in your Bible like this, and then on this front page here is the list one and list two. So you start, you read, you just start reading there at Matthew, and you would mark off Matthew chapter 1, and then you go down to list 2, Genesis chapter 1, read that, and then go down to list 3, chapter 1 in Romans, and then flip it open, and then you do that through that first day, and then you go and mark the next box. Some people like marking boxes. That's why I gave you this. So 
you know, so for some of you, this might work. For some of you, the bookmarks, you can cut your own bookmarks and that might work. For me, I'm using the electronic version because it's the easiest thing for me. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'm reading it. Yeah, I'm actually reading it in, on my phone or on my Kindle or on my computer. And then sometimes I'm listening to it because what I found is, I mean, it, it's probably better to actually read it in a, in a Bible and go through it and flip back and forth. That's probably the best way to do it. But I know for me and my schedule and my time, it works really well for me to do it that way. And I'm doing And it's even what I'm doing, which is probably the least effective of all those ways, I'm telling you, it's revolutionized my Bible reading and my, my relationship with him. And I'm not exaggerating. I don't, I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling you the truth. So I encourage you. Uh, this is my sales pitch for the system. I don't get any money for this. You know what it inspired me to tell you about it is? It's made such a difference for me. I want you to have this experience. And I feel like all of us as Christians, that's our goal as Christians anyway, is to grow in him. And I want to challenge you to do this. And don't get hung up on, wow, 10 chapters. What if I miss a day? You know what? So what? Just start the next day. I mean, don't, don't get hung up on that. That's not the point. And in fact, I hesitated to tell you about it at first because I thought, oh, well, someone's going to think, wow, Dennis is saying he reads 10 chapters a day. I, that's not important. I don't care about that. What I care about is that we're growing in our faith, and it's growing my faith, and I want your faith to grow that way. That's why I told you about it. Okay, so, oh, there's, there's the bookmarks. I just wanted to, in case you didn't look at it at the same time. Okay, let's talk about tonight. Uh, wh- what we're going to do tonight is a little different than what we've been doing, but it's along the lines of our Bible Mythbusters. I'm just going to ask you a couple trivia questions to start off again. Okay, quick question. Who wrote most of the Bible? Who's the person who wrote the most verses, total verses of the Bible? Does anybody know? Guess. Paul, someone said Paul. That's a good guess. David, that's a great guess because, did you say that or did someone behind you? Okay, because obviously Psalms, right? Who said Moses? I heard Moses back here. Was it Jerry? <laughs> it is Moses. Moses actually wrote the, the most, total most numbers of, of verses in the Bible because he's credited with writing the first five books of the Bible, and that's Jewish history, uh, Jewish historians. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, that's impossible. And you're kind of looking at him like, why, why would you say that's impossible? If God wanted Moses, I mean, look at Moses' life. You're going to tell me anything for that guy's life would have been impossible, please? I mean, so, and he had time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he had time to write this down. So anyway, um, just so you know, the verses in the, we call that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, there's 5,852 verses there. The book of Psalms, that was a good guess. The entire book of Psalms, though, is, is 2,461, and David only wrote about half of those. So it's, it's a good guess, though, because it's a large number there. Okay, here's the next question. Who wrote most in the New Testament? This is kind of a trick question, but... Paul is a great guess. Luke? Someone say Luke back there. Luke is a better guess. Actually, and the only reason, Luke wrote two books, you know, Luke and Acts, they're the longest in there. And so, but um, here's, here's why they're both good guesses, though. Uh, Luke and Acts, if you add the total number of verses there, it's 2,159 verses that Luke was responsible for. Paul's, well, let me get to the next question. Who wrote the most books in the New Testament and in the whole Bible? Paul, I'll just get to it. Paul, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament, 13 letters. Most of his letters are short, though. So the total number of verses there is 2,033. And it's disputed whether or not he wrote Hebrews. Most scholars don't think he did. 
they think it was somebody else because it's, it doesn't fit his style. Like all the, all the other books fit perfectly, Paul. They're all very similar. And Hebrews is similar, but not, not, even, not as close. So, but if he had written Hebrews, then he would have written the most. But, but it, was, it was more likely Luke. Um, when was the first Bible printed? Anybody know this? Say, say again. You are really close. Like, too close. 1454 by, by Gutenberg. And you realize the Gutenberg press was invented then. That's the first movable type press that was invented. And the Bible was the first book printed on the first printing press. And there's still, I think, five Gutenberg Bibles in existence today. And, of course, they're priceless. But, but um, just a little trivia there. Okay, how about this? Um, my, what we've been doing is, you know, just phrases that may or may not be in the Bible. Uh, rest in peace. You know, you see this all the time. Rip, whoever has passed away. Bible or not? Not? Actually, it's in there. Isn't that weird? Uh, if, is Isaiah 57.2. Uh, for those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die. How about this one? Guests like fish begin to smell after three days. Does that sound like Proverbs at all or Ecclesiastes maybe? No, it's Benjamin Franklin. Um, <laughs> can you imagine being him? You know, him and Mark Twain, I mean, those guys just float out clever things. It's just amazing. It would have been incredible to be around them. However, wear out your welcome, which is kind of what that said, right? We wear out our welcome. That is in the Bible. Proverbs 25, 17. Don't visit your neighbors too often or you will wear out your welcome. <laughs> I love that. Okay, um, <clears throat> how about this phrase or this thought? At least you tried. That's a pretty common phrase today, right? You hear that a lot. And there is some merit in trying. And it, exactly, I actually wrote that in my notes. You get an E for effort. And it's not an A or a B or a C or D and F. It's an E for effort. At least you tried. And there is, some, there is something to say for trying, of course. Um, but the Bible has a different look at it. It says in Jeremiah 29, 13, it's kind of the opposite of that, I think. And it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I mean, that's effort right there. But here's the catch. you got to be doing the effort in the right direction, right? It's like practice makes perfect. No, no, it doesn't. Perfect practice makes perfect. Because if you practice the wrong thing, you'll be good at the wrong thing. And if all of your effort is going in the wrong direction, that's not a great thing. So, you know, that whole idea of, well, at least we tried. Okay, well, that's great until you're talking about your surgeon, right? (laughs) Or your dentist. Well, he's really sincere, Okay, well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough most of the time. And that's not, you know, where we're going with that. How about the concept of blind spots? You know, we say everybody has a blind spot here or there. I heard this quote, man, it just, it just hit me hard. It was a couple days ago, and I put it on Facebook today, just a quote that said, um, what's that? Plank eye, yeah, plank eye is a good one to think. Oh, I can't even remember the own quote I put on there, darn it. But it, it said, um, I don't want to be the, one of those confident people who's, wrong and doesn't know it or something like that, you know. But that is scripture. It says this. It's not quite exactly worded that way, but it says, who can discern their own errors? Lord, forgive my hidden faults. My hidden faults. Um, there's been a lot of surveys done about people and their, what they know about the Bible. Part of, part of why I wanted to do this series was this, because we, we really have come into an era and an age where people are hugely biblically illiterate. We don't really read and know our Bibles like we should. 
A poll, um, this is a Barna, George Barna is a Christian pollster, and he did a poll of Americans a few years ago. He found that less than one half of adults could name the four Gospels. Now, obviously, naming you know, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John doesn't get you to heaven. That's not the point. The point is, if you don't even know the Scripture well enough to know that common thing, then you need to know Scripture more, and less than half of Americans could do that. Fewer than 60% could name five of the Ten Commandments. You would think that would be a little easier, right? Okay, well, anyway, 82% of Americans believe that that phrase we talked about, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible, which doesn't surprise me. It sounds biblical. 12% of adults believe, now this is kind of crazy, but it's only 12%. I mean, that's not a huge number, but 12% believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife, which is comical, but... Uh, and then this is weird and scary. Over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And then a huge number of respondents thought that when asked who preached the Sermon on the Mount, they thought it was Billy Graham. <clears throat> Having said that, though, um, he did a poll of Christians. And what he found was, talking about biblical knowledge and literacy, a, a, a very common response was something like this. I know the Bible like I know songs on the radio. I recognize them enough to sing along, but I don't really know the title or the artist. Uh, another Christian said, I know some Bible verses, but I don't know the chapter and verse or even the story behind them. And think about it for a minute. When you don't know the story or what, what the point of the verse is, it loses some of the punch and some of the meaning. Another person said, I have a really hard time remembering any verses. And it says, I don't even know anybody's phone number anymore. You know, when you think about that, it's kind of a modern phenomenon where we don't use our memories quite like we used to. You know, it used to be, you know, we had a lot of phone numbers memorized, for instance, because we needed them. But now they're all in our phone, and we just don't memorize them. I mean, I know my wife's phone number, but I don't know my kids. I have two kids with phones, and I don't know their numbers. And it was haunting me today as I was going over the sermon. I thought, that's not right. It's not right. I should know their numbers, and I don't. You know, I know my parents' number because it hasn't changed in 30 years, you know. And, uh, but I don't know their cell numbers, but I know their home number. And I thought about it for a minute. What if, you know, I mean, it's not unheard of. We'd have a, some type of power failure or electronic failure or something. And I wouldn't, I mean, how would I get a hold of them, you know? Uh, anyway, I mean, they still have a home phone, thankfully. We don't. I mean, I don't, how many of you still have a home phone? Okay, that's less than half. Yeah, that's, that's where we are today. That's how it is. Um, <clears throat> but let me ask you even a more serious question. If the Bible itself was outlawed tomorrow, and I know this sounds facetious perhaps, but, but imagine if our government were to change radically, and, and things like this could happen quicker probably than we realize. I wouldn't say that it would happen as quick as it does in other countries, but you hear about this type of thing happening in countries where the government might come in and say, okay, all the churches are shutting down. We're confiscating all the Bibles. You know, what would you do? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, getting your guns and fighting. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what would you do as a Christian spiritually? I'm not, and I'm not even here saying I would stand up and fight. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. What would you do with your scripture, with your word? Because, you know, this did happen in China. They call it the Cultural Revolution, but we know it was Mao Zedong's, you know, communist revolution where they killed millions upon millions of people. They did the same thing in Russia. I mean, these things have happened in our world in recent memory, and it's even happened in the last few years. Um, what would you do? You know, in those countries, you know, some of them buried their Bibles. Some of them, you know, tore pages out. Some of them passed out pages and said, you memorize this page because we won't know how long we'll have it. 
I took a group of students to Russia in 1992, which seems like, and it is ages ago, isn't it? That's, oh goodness, that's 20 years ago, isn't it? Okay, that was soon after the fall, and we were doing these crusades in Siberia, which it's so weird. You know, we were in this city of about 2 million. We're only a few hundred miles north of Mongolia, and the people there had no idea they were that close to China. They just didn't know. They were so isolated in their own country. And we would do these crusades, and afterward, these people would come up, and they would have these little tiny pieces of Scripture, and they would show us, because we were handing out Bibles. And they would weep over the idea that they were getting their own Bible. And we would go to these churches, and the churches weren't underground anymore, but the churches, they would say, they would show us the church Bible. And they were so proud of it. It was this one Bible that they had that they all shared and I look at that, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that we... Uh, here's what I'm saying. Our, the, the scripture that we have is powerful. It's literally the word of God. It, that's what it is. But often we don't treat it like that. We don't appreciate it that way. We, don't, we almost take it for granted. So many of us have multiple Bibles in our homes. I have a little, very little, and I want to keep it small. I'm not looking to collect more, but I have a little Bible collection. You know, I have some very, very old Bibles. I have some... You know, I have some Bibles that were distributed in World War I and in World War II to the soldiers. They're actual Bibles that were in soldiers' hands, and they've got some notes jotted in there. They're very special to me, but I have a lot of them. You, know, you, hear, you hear what I'm saying? I've got different versions. I have Bibles I used at different phases in my life in college. I've got the one that I had that I got when I was in, like, fourth, fifth grade, and I had it rebound once because the, the binding had fallen off. And, um, I mean, I still have that. <laughs> So would you memorize parts of it? Maybe, maybe if it was that dear, would you, would you take it that? I mean, would you, would you do what those people did? You know, would you try to save one, maybe put it in a rafter or a special hiding place? Here's, here's my question, and I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying, if we really believe that this is the word of God, that these are the words that the God of the universe protected and inspired and had written for us, and they really are the... the the fullness of the faith and practice. This is what we need from him, our daily bread, literally. Would we treat it different? Would you memorize it more? Would you, I thought about this the other day, you know, you think about, I, I, I just, in my mind, I'm picturing, I can't get this picture out of my mind of this one man in particular in Russia because we had left the crusade and we'd been there late and I had all these high school kids, you know, I had boys and girls and we were trying to walk through these streets and you know, they seemed entirely safe to us as Americans, you know, but the, our interpreter kept saying, it's not safe, stay together, get, you know, get where you're going. And, and they, you know, they were really worried and scared. And so I was trying to get our kids somewhere. And this man, we kept seeing him, glimpses of him following us. And it was kind of weird, you know, but he's this little guy. And anyway, he finally came up and I just stopped and took the interpreter over and I said, what do you want, you know? And what he wanted to know was, could he have another Bible? That's what he wanted. <laughs> you know, I just look at that and I think, man, yeah, you can. You know, we were giving them our Bibles. It was so weird. They were wanting us to sign them and all this. And we're like, oh, goodness, people. Here, take whatever we have. We don't appreciate it like you do. <laughs> so here's the thing. The reason we did this Mythbusters thing in the first place was the Bible is so important. I, I don't want at any point for us to have any reason or give anybody an excuse to not trust it. You need to be able to trust it. You need to be able to embrace every piece of it and not worry that it's not real or it's not true or that it doesn't mean what it says. 
So that's why it bothers me when there's things that people have believed that aren't quite right. That's not exactly what it meant. Because what it means is powerful and meaningful. And there's times where we get a little bit off on something. And, you know, obviously some of those things aren't as important. And I'm not, you know, I would never like part fellowship with somebody over parts of scripture. I've had people do that with me. But I mean, to me, our relationship with Christ, we can find more things than we agree on than we disagree on. But, but it's still important for us to find those areas that need correcting. And that's why we've been doing this series in the first place. And if you think about it, every relationship that's meaningful in your life that you have is built on trust. You know, obviously your husband-wife relationship, there's a reason that God uses that relationship so often as a comparison to his relationship with us. You know, he talks about the people of Israel and how they followed after idols, and he calls that, he calls that unfaithfulness as if in a marriage. There's a reason he does that. But there's a trust relationship that's built there, and if you can't trust the Bible then it's not going to be your, your rule of faith and practice. You're not going to do what it says, and you're not going to feel like it can speak into your life and change your moral system and change the way you act. You're not going to do it if you don't really trust it. It's just how it is. The first man and God relationship, the first relationship that man and God had in the Garden of Eden was, Eden was ruined because of a broken trust. I mention this a lot because it comes back over and over and over in Scripture, and it comes back almost in every argument the enemy throws at us. You know, Jesus said that he was a liar, and he's a liar from the beginning, the father of liars. And he is a liar, but he's not, he's a good liar. Let me, let me, let me be careful how I say this. He's a great liar, but he's not real creative. He kind of keeps coming up with the same old lies, and this is what he does. He tells us that God is withholding good things from us somehow. That's the lie the enemy told Eve. He said, did God really say you can't eat of this? And why was that? Because he didn't want you to be like him, right? He didn't want you to have all the goodness that God has. He made her distrust God. It broke the trust relationship between man and God. And if you think about the whole story of the Bible, the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, it was God's effort to regain and rebuild the trust. He sent prophets. He sent judges. He sent Moses. He sent all these people and said, trust me, I'm God. Look at me. You can trust me. I will take care of you in your time of need. I will protect you. I will fight your battles for you. And ultimately, sending Jesus himself was an effort to regain and rebuild the trust between us and him. That's what it was about. The lie was that God somehow didn't want to share some goodness that he was keeping to himself. It's so creepy, isn't it? That whole word, when I, when I wrote this in the PowerPoint, I misspelled goodness, and I misspelled it godness. You ever notice that relationship in that word? And I know I'm a geek and I'm a word geek. I know that. But that word does mean goodness, godness. There's a reason we say for goodness sake. It's God. God is in goodness. He is goodness. That's what he is. The whole lie that Eve was bought and Adam bought was that God didn't want a life. There was something that, that life could have been better, but God didn't want it all the way better. And isn't that the same lie people tell? Or they're being told that all the time right? Like you can't have sex. Why? It's a good thing, but God doesn't want you to have fun. That's not it. That's not it. God wants you to have that, but he wants you to have that in the right context and the framework and trust of marriage because that's where it's best for you. But the world throws out that, that lie that it's all about fun. It's not about fun. It's like when your kids say, hey mom, my friends are going somewhere. Well, where? Well, I'm not sure. Well, what time? Midnight? you know what? Nothing good happens then. I'm sorry. And who's driving? And, but mom, I can't have any fun. 
No, it's not that. It has nothing to do with me keeping you from having fun. It's because I love you and I want to protect you and I want your life to be wonderful and good. That's why we put boundaries on things. That's why God does that. And the enemy has sold us a lie. With that comes the danger of this. There are scriptures that we take and and the ones we're going to look at tonight, they're not huge, big misinterpretations. It's not a huge, big deal. I'm not talking about, you know, big heresies people have launched off in. I'm not talking about Jim Jones or any weird things. But these are still just a little bit twists off what God intended. And what I want us to do is be able to celebrate and rejoice in what he intended for us. Because you can trust that he is good and what he intends is good. The other problem with some of these misapplications of scripture or misinterpretations is that sometimes we build these unreal expectations of God that not only are unreal, and I hesitate to say unfair because I just hate that word fair because it's been so misused. But it's not what God, who he is. People get the idea that God is Santa. Why? Because God gives good things to his children. Isn't that true? Well, of course it's true. People quote those verses all the time, right? If you ask anything in my name, I'll just give it to you. Isn't that the same as Santa? Sounds like it to me. So there's a, there's a way that if we misapply and misinterpret these scriptures, that people can get an expectation about God that when it's not fulfilled, they don't trust him anymore. And that's because they didn't understand what it really meant. The truth is, he's not going to just give you anything. He's going to give you things that you need and things that are in his will for you, the good things for you. It's like your kids again. If they want a candy every minute of every day, you wouldn't give it to them because you want them to have teeth, right? And you want them healthy, and you're not going to give them that. So that's just the same with God. So here, whenever we go to scripture, we want to ask some questions. Who wrote it? I'm not talking about God wrote it. I'm talking about who wrote the book you're looking at. Who wrote it? Somebody wrote it. Somebody, a living, breathing human being, wrote it at a place in time, and it meant something there. And that's important. When was it written? There's an actual time it was written. There was a culture there that was written in, and it matters. And you know it matters. You've been around the Bible long enough to know this, that when Jesus talks about the sower sowing seed, how many young people would even know what that is? They're thinking of a thread and needle at best, right? They have no idea what that means. But they did. They knew that then. So you need to find out when it was written, who it was written to, what it meant to those people who it was written to, they, who it was written about. There's certain people that are written about there. And then you need to start asking then, what's in there for me? Okay, that's what it meant then. How does that then apply to me? What's, what is then there for me? Is there a warning in there, a promise in there, an example for me to follow? There's tons of things in scripture for us, but not necessarily... Uh, but sometimes we mess it up. So let's take a look. Let me, let me rephrase it another way. There's the there and then, the there and then when scripture was written, we call that exegesis in, in like theological circles. Exegesis means to pull out of scripture what's in scripture, pull it out. That's the exe part, the out. That, that would also be called context. I know you've heard that phrase before. And the original intent. What did the writer mean when he wrote it? So we'll talk about one of these problems with original intent in a minute. Well, let me just mention one that I didn't, we're not looking at tonight, but you know, the parable of the talents, Jesus talks about the parable of the talents, right? Jesus is talking, you know, one of the gospels, one of the gospels, when was that written? First century. Okay. In, in Roman occupied Jerusalem, what were talents? Most people think talents are like singing or right. (laughs) It had nothing to do with that. Nothing. Talents were money. It was a, it was a measure of money. That's what it meant to them. Now, God does give us different talents, and one of those might be singing. 
but it might be also things, other things. But see how you can really mess it up if you don't think about what the original intent was. Okay, and then you talk about the here and now, which is what we call, again, theological. I just want to throw out some big words for you because it's fun. Hermeneutics. And then that's really what that means is how you apply that scripture to me. So let's take a look at one. It's one of my favorite scriptures. Most of you apply this and you do it correctly, but some people don't. And it's not a big deal. Like I said, it's, none of these are big deals tonight. But what I really want to encourage you about is what they really do mean. So this is a great scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You ever seen that? Okay, you know where I saw that last? Printed somewhere? On the wall at a gym. Okay? It's, it's not wrong, necessarily. It's just, that has nothing to do with what the scripture's about at all. So what does it have to do with about? Who wrote it? Paul. Okay, good. He, Paul wrote it. Uh, when was it written? We'll just say first century. You don't need to know the date. But right around there in the first century. Okay. Uh, who was it written to? The Philippians, which was a church in the city of Philippi, which would be in Asia Minor today. Okay. It was a new church, brand new church. And it was new people. And um, <clears throat> who was it written about? Do you know? It was written about them as what they were going through in their life. Okay, we, we said that Paul wrote it, right? Do you know where he wrote it from? This matters. Someone said it, I think. He wrote it from prison. He was writing about suffering. He was writing about suffering. He wasn't writing about lifting weights. He wasn't writing about li- running a race. He wasn't writing about, God can help me finish mowing my lawn because I can do all things through Christ. Can, gra- can God help you finish stuff? Yeah. Can he give you strength to do things, you know, that you're trying to accomplish? Can he do you, can you achieve wonderful things in life? Of course. Can God help you with that? Yes. But that's not what this verse is about. What this verse is about is really, really, really huge. Um, This passage is about the fact that when you are being persecuted and tormented and suffering, that our God will give you strength through that. Now, does that apply to you when you're having issues in your family? Yeah. Yes, it does. Does it apply to you when when things are going wrong and you can't figure anything out and you don't know what is happening? Yes, it does. What that means is that he is there for us in the depths of our struggles, in the depths of our problems. Now, can God also help you run races? Yeah, that's great. But that's not what this verse is about. This is a verse is specifically about the people in Philippi were being tormented for their faith. And Paul was sharing with them the fact that he had been imprisoned all these times. He had been beaten for his faith. All of those things had been happening. And he said that my God gives me strength. And I can endure these things because my God gives me strength in these things. That is powerful. I love this verse. And I have quoted this verse right here that's up here, Jeremiah 29, 11 more in the last few years of my life than I have in my entire ministry, my entire Christian life. You know why? Because it was so misquoted in the beginning of my ministry. Because I kind of came of age in ministry in the name it, claim it years. And um, let's take a look. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Here's the thing. This is a great verse. It's a powerful verse. But let's, let's go through and ask our questions. Who wrote it? Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah? 
He was a prophet. He was what? (laughs) He was a major prophet. Do you remember why that is? Because he wrote a long book. Major just means long. (laughs) But he was also called the weeping prophet. He was also a very young prophet. He was also a prophet during the time of Israel's captivity. Did you know that? Okay. He wrote it. I just gave it away. <laughs> That's when he wrote it. He wrote it during uh, right, around, uh, right around 627 to 585 BC. And uh, Israel was actually in captivity at the time. They were in Babylon. And they'd been there nearly 70 years. And you would know that if you flipped back to verse 10. But nobody does that. They just pick out 2911, right? But they don't look at verse 10. So what unfortunately, remember I talked about you need to know what the words meant at the time. Nobody in captivity in Babylon was worried about prospering the way that we were talking about prospering the last 10, 20 years. They weren't. None of them were thinking they were going to get a pink Cadillac. Nobody. Nobody was worried about their gold watch or what ring they were going to wear. None of that. That's not what that verse meant to them at all. It was written to the captives who were in Babylon. It was written about their captivity. Uh, Let's look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. What What was it? What was he? He was promising them. What was prosperity to them? Prosperity was freedom. Prosperity was being taken from captivity and living a life free of that again. It was literally physical and spiritual salvation for them. And you know what? That's what that verse means. And I love that that verse means that. Because how do we apply that to us today? Our God has a plan for you, for you. Now, I know it was written to Jews in Babylon, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, 1,500 years ago, no, 2,500 years ago. But it's also for you, but not to get you a new car. What it is, is that our God has a plan for you. And his plans, you know what? His plans may include a new car. Hopefully a Jeep for you. It may. You know, that's great. But that's not what God's really concerned about. What God is concerned about is that your soul prospers, that your spirit prospers. And that if Paul was writing this, he would have said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in, whether it's poverty or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is that my relationship with God is where it needs to be. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah 29, 11 is talking about. That our God, no matter who you are and where you are in life, that he will take care of you. And yeah, that might mean a great car. I mean, but that's not the whole point of it. <clears throat> it's physical and spiritual prosperity. Here's another great scripture. Again, one of my favorite scriptures. <sighs> but not for the reason you think. Uh, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. How many of you heard that? How many of you heard that in church? I haven't heard it in this church recently, so I hope I'm not being offensive to any of you, but someone will say, hey, there's two or three of us here. Praise God. God is here. Okay. You know what? Well, I I don't want to cut to the chase here. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Matthew wrote it. Matthew was a disciple one of the gospel writers, the first, first book there. Uh, when was it written? It was written in that first century. And just to give you kind of a timeline, the city of Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So all the books in the New Testament were written before that, except for the book of Revelation, which was probably written around 90 AD, about 20 years later, because John wasn't in Jerusalem. He was in exile on an island. Okay, who was it written 
uh, to whom was it written? To Christians, to new Christians, to the church. Um, uh, who, who is it written about? Who said it? Let me just ask that. Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. So in some of your Bibles, they'd be read. Okay? Um, oh, before I go there. Most people have used the scripture to say, hey, if there's just a few of us here, God is here. Okay, that's comforting, isn't it? Okay, it, okay. it's actually not that comforting to me. You know why? Because it kind of implies, what if it's just me? And I've always sat there and thought, okay, I'm glad you've comforted that we're here so God's with us, but isn't he always with us? I mean, doesn't the Bible say he's always here? His presence, why well, can never go anywhere from your presence? Don't I want him more when I'm not around? I mean, I love being with you all. And I do feel his presence when I'm with you, but I, I really need his presence when I'm alone and when I'm lonely and when things are desperate and I'm crying out to him. I want to feel and know that he's there then. This verse applied that way doesn't give me comfort then. So let's do this. Let's find out where does this verse actually come in the book of Matthew? It actually starts back in the section, verse 15. I wasn't going to give you all these scriptures, but it's important. This is all the whole, uh, the whole paragraph talks like this. Okay, so that was verse 20. This is verse 15, Matthew 8, 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. And in the, in the, in the King James and in the NIV, it, it says you have won a brother back. Okay? So are you following where I'm going with this? It kind of doesn't have much to do with the way we've applied that verse in the past, does it? You're seeing there's a context here that is different than that. This is actually a, one of my favorite verses because this, this section of Scripture talks about how we're supposed to deal with interpersonal conflict in the church. It talks about the fact that instead of talking about each other or running off to somebody who can influence something or over somebody's head, you're supposed to go directly and talk to somebody and try to win them back. That's the whole point of it. So Jesus here is talking about conflict and church discipline, and it goes on in verse 16. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And remember, the motivation is to win the brother back, not to put it in their face or to show them up or to show them they're wrong. The idea is reconciliation. I love that. Verse 17, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Anybody remember that ever happening? That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? I'm not looking for that to happen. I'm just saying I don't remember it ever happening in church because look what he says to do. And if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Ouch. Boot them out of the church. Ouch. We don't usually get to this step, do we? I mean, I've, I've never seen that happen in a church setting. You know, I don't want to either. Hopefully we can get it done before. Okay, then verses 18, 19. We're still not to the two or three present thing. Okay, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And in the King James, do you remember what that said in King James? Bound. Remember that whole thing about binding and loosing and people were binding this and binding that? Okay, this is where that comes from. If you, whatever you forbid or bind on earth will be forbidden or bound in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth, which will be loosed in the King James, uh, will be loosed in heaven. I also tell you this, if two or... If two of you uh, agree on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Then it says, for where two or three are you are in agreement, I am there with you. This is a scripture all about discipline. 
church discipline. What he was trying to say is, this is a very important thing, and don't worry, I've got your back. I am present in these discipline situations. If you guys are doing this and you get to the point where there's two or three involved, I'm with you. It's important. I am present in this. So what do we take away from that? We kind of, we want God to be with us, right? But you don't have to make that scripture say it. He's with us. He's always with us. And if anything, you should be encouraged by the fact that he is always here, whether it's one or a million, one or a thousand. He is with you. He is with you. Uh, Yeah. Okay, how about this verse? Again, one of my favorites. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'm going to hurry. Who wrote it? Paul, good. And uh, when was it written? First century, we know that already. We've already kind of gone over that. Who was it written to? Church in Rome. There was a new church in Rome. Paul hadn't visited them yet. He was writing them. He'd heard all about them, and he was writing them this. Um, And uh, who, who is it written about? Or what is it written about? Or Kind of asking you a big question there. Because basically what has happened in the book of Romans up till this point, he is basically laying out the entire gospel and the plan of salvation and how he, you know, remember Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory. Okay, all, that's where all that comes from, is the book of Romans. He's leading up to this verse. So what is he getting to? What is he saying? Uh, you know, what's in it for me? A warning, a promise, an example. Here's the thing. In that verse... It comes down to this. What he's talking about there is, I don't know if I put it all up there. I'm sorry. Let me see here. Um, What he did was he put it in there. What he's talking about there is that all things do work together for good. What he's saying is that all these circumstances, all the things that have happened in our life are going to work together for good. Now, this is where we kind of get off track a little bit (laughs) because the good I'm usually thinking of is monetary or making me comfortable or happy, right? I mean, isn't that fair to say? Do you think that's what Paul meant? No, the whole thing he's talking about is salvation. The good he's talking about is the goodness of God and your relationship with God being good and where it should be. That's the good he's talking about. Now, does that mean that the things that have happened in your life, he doesn't weave together for those things? No, it does mean that. But what I'm saying is, don't get the, miss, the, the expectation that everything I do, God's going to work it out and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And his good is better than your perfect. <laughs> I like this too because it goes on and says, he's going to work everything to his good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I felt like the Lord... Uh, was speaking to me about this, and let me, let me just read this to you. That, in, that When it says works together for good, that's in the present tense, which tells us that it's an ongoing activity of God. It's happening now. He's working things together for our good. He's making that happen. The things themselves may not be good, but God harmonizes them together for our ultimate good. Now, according to his purpose, let's think about this for one second. That's not necessarily our purpose, is it? But think about this. The more time you spend with him, the more your purpose becomes his purpose. And you want what he wants. What's funny about that is the more you spend with him, then when when you're called according to his purpose, they become one thing. It's as if 
he inhabits you. And that's the whole idea with Paul talking about we become in Christ and we become more like him. You want what he wants. You can still have a Jeep, but I'm just saying you want what he wants. So let me pull all this together. The reason I wanted to pull these four scriptures together is because they're related a little bit. And I want you to rejoice in what they really say. So can you trust him? Can you trust the God that says that you can do all things? Because you know what that means? That he will give you strength in time of trouble. I can trust that God. I need that. I need that more than I need help lifting at the gym. Seriously, that's what I need. When I'm in trouble, that's when I need him. I can trust him for that. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. You know what that means? That he has spiritual prosperity in mind for me. He has a good thing there for me. I love that about him. Matthew 18, 20, he's present for one and all. He is always present with you. Everywhere you go, he is there. And he cares about relationships and he cares about reconciliation and he cares about it being done correctly. And then Romans 8, 28, He wants our good, and he is weaving all these things together for his purpose, and I want my purpose to be his purpose. I can trust that God. Would you shut your eyes with me for just a second? My intention was in no way to, you know, maybe one of these verses you have thought of it in in that other way, and, and, you know, I I didn't want to offend you in that. What I want you to do is to be encouraged in the fact that he gives you strength in time of trouble that he is there for you, for your spiritual prosperity. He has a good in mind for you that is better than anything you could imagine. And it may have nothing to do with finances at all, but it's good. It's good. My question tonight is simple. Can you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you really trust that what he says in there is true? And if so, can you then trust him with your life? I'm not asking you to become a Christian tonight. I, I, my, I think every one of you are Christians. What I'm saying is, can you trust him with your daily life for the things that go wrong and then you can say, God, I need your strength today because I can do all things through you. Can you trust him like that? And I'm going to leave you with one challenge. I would love for you all to do that, you know, Dr. Horner deal, Professor Horner's Bible reading plan. But more importantly, whether you do that or not, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to spend more time reading the word tomorrow than you did today. I'm not talking about an hour, 30 minutes, just more time. Will you spend more time with him? I challenge you, and I just promise you, it will pay off for you. The more you read in his word, the more you will trust him. The more you trust him, the deeper your relationship and your walk will be with him, the closer you will be with him, and you will experience those good plans that he has for you. Father, I pray for this group of people, for this church. God, I pray that we would just be, be more hungry for your word than ever before. And God, I ask that as we open...